Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. There's a classic parenting book titled, Parenting is Not for Cowards. And anyone who's been a parent understands the meaning of that. Uh, thank you all for being in church today. It speaks to uh, your commitment, your willingness, your maturity, wanting to grow, wanting to grow in this topic. I want to say hi to everyone watching online or listening by podcast later this week. And uh, we're praying for a foundations class that's happening next door today. Uh, but in here, we're talking about how your work matters to God. And today, in today's topic, we're going to talk about the work of raising the next generation. Parents are heroes, and the work of a parent matters so greatly. Parenting might be the most challenging job, most challenging work there is, because it's literally the job of trying to raise another human being, which is incredibly complex. If parenting is hard work, if you say, man, this is hard, that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It is hard, even when you're doing it right, and even when you're doing everything right. It's hard work. It's not by accident that Parenting starts out with a process called labor. Any mom can tell you it's labor carrying a baby to full term and delivering that baby is labor. It's hard work and the work just gets, keeps getting harder as time goes on. Before becoming a parent, there were so many things I did not know. I didn't know parenting math. I didn't know that there's this whole other math structure you had to learn. For instance, for every one person you add to your home, that's three times as much laundry. Come on, somebody, amen. For every one person you add to your home, that's four times the amount of dishes. That's parenting math. I still have so much to learn as a parent. Struggles, battles, heartbreaks, I know nothing about yet. But I'm learning from you, I'm clinging to God's word, and today I wanna talk about some things from scripture that can help us bring out the best in the young people around us. Families are in serious trouble today. When I talk to parents, they are stressed out, they're overloaded, certainly not living with margin. They go from one event to the next, one assignment to the next, then are too overloaded and exhausted to be involved in their church or to grow in their faith as a family. And there's so many pressures on the family right now, pressures inside the family, pressures outside the family, uh, pressures that weren't really as prevalent 10 or 15 years ago. There's pressures that have increased just in the last three years and families need support. It's a big deal at Rockbrook because we love families, we love your kids, we wanna support parents, we wanna support students, we wanna support kids. Another reason though I'm including this message in this work series is, and this involves those of you who don't have parents or have kids around you right now, I'm just going to say as your pastor, as your friend, you need kids in your life. Study after study after study after study has shown that if you don't have kids in your life, uh, you grow older faster, you have a hardening of attitudes, it's more difficult to break an addiction, your body feels worse, it's harder to make changes. Kids actually help us grow. Yes, we help them grow, but they help us grow. Yesterday, I got to attend the National Day of Volunteer Youth Ministry training 
uh, with some of our leaders and student volunteers and small group leaders. This is actually a national simulcast we hosted here. I love this quote from one of the trainers in there, and I'll talk more next week on this too. Teenagers need our whole church, and our whole church needs teenagers. Whether you have kids in the home or not, married or not, it's really irrelevant. You need kids in your life, nieces and nephews, and serving along other students at church and and impacting other generations, serving with other generations. You need multi-generations in your life. If you only have one in your life, you're missing out. Other generations are to uphold the others. I want to show you this today in Exodus 3.15 before we start tracking with your notes. It says, God said to Moses, say to the Israelites, and then we get a phrase that we get several times in Scripture. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now, when you, you see this a few times in Scripture, and God, what God is saying when he brings this up is that there are ancient ways that he doesn't want broken. He wants them instilled in every generation. And that's what we see here. Abraham, if you look on the screen, lived 175 years. Isaac lived 180 years, and then Jacob lived 147 years. But if you see, there was a portion of their life where they are all alive at the same time so that they could pass on the wonderful deeds of God. So when the generations of your family get together for the holidays or whatever it is, Don't send kids into one place, adults into one place, seniors into one place. Let them be all together. In fact, right now we're in a unique period of time in history where, because there are five generations alive on the earth today. You have the silent generation, born between 1928 and 1945, baby boomers between 1946 and 64, Gen X between 65 and 80, Millennials born between 81 and 96, and then Gen Z, and there's not an end date on that generation uh, yet. But it's a fascinating time because, I mean, five, can anyone figure out why we're uncomfortable in the world today? Like, there have been these life-altering events that have happened in our culture, in our society, in our history, all that we've had different experiences that change the way we see the world and look at the world, but we're trying to live in it together and it impacts the way we see one another. But God is giving us a tremendous opportunity that we have the opportunity to influence five generations deep or five generations out from us. That's one reason I'm looking forward to men's night this Friday night. Of course we do this on the weekend too, but to have the generations of men together Hear a powerful testimony. You're going to hear this man's um, amazing testimony. And I believe God's giving a word to go along with that that I'm excited to give. And just the fellowship together and our time together beyond that. Because what the world wants to do is to segregate these generations. And to say, kids, you go to your class. Uh, Teenagers, you go to your class. Uh, you uh, go to this thing. 
seniors, you go work over there in that area. We'll go over work over here in this area. You go live there. We'll live here. But in the church, we have one another in our lives, and we need each other in our lives, and we need the other generations in our lives. Teens need to be serving, working, learning alongside with other generations, and we can learn from the teenagers as well. So the Bible tells us, gives us five principles for bringing out the best in another generation or in the next generation. We're gonna look at two of those five principles this weekend. We're gonna look at the other three next weekend. Uh, Today we're only gonna cover, and for some of you this is gonna really bug you, but we're only gonna cover the first half of this outline today, okay? And then next week we'll come and pick up uh, the, the last half of it. Don't worry about it, we'll cover it all. I just didn't wanna throw the whole bale of hay at you today. So let's go to number one. And that is accept their uniqueness completely. How can you bring out the best in another generation? Every child, if you have more than one child in your family or you grew up with siblings, you know that every child is completely different. Can we all agree on that? Even while they're living in the same house, they're really having unique experiences because one child is experiencing life as the oldest. The other child's experiencing life as the youngest. You are changing and growing as a person and a parent as well. So a 10-year-old is having a different 10-year-old experience than their brother or sister when they're 10 years old because you're a different, growing, changing person. The dynamics of your life are changing. And God intentionally makes every one of us different. Yes, he could have just made a machine that punched all of us out, processed all of us. We all look the same, smell the same, act the same, look the same. But in that world, uh, generations wouldn't need anyone else. And we wouldn't need one another. You wouldn't need friends because we all offer the same thing. Nobody would want to date anybody because you already know everything about them. Nobody would want to travel because all the cultures would be the same, act the same, be alike. God loves diversity, just like there are no two snowflakes alike. He's never made any two people that are exactly alike. Even identical twins are different in thousands of ways. You have different heartbeat, uh, uh, handprint, footprint, eye print, voice print, personality, fingerprint. It's the way God works. We're all unique. In Ephesians 2.10, let's read this one out loud together. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Before you were even born, God designed you. This word masterpiece or workmanship, it comes from the word poema, which was where we get the word poem. And it means like work of art. Uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, an artist, has a song he wrote for his daughter that I love. It's called Only One and Only You. And in it, he says, you're better than a Beethoven symphony. The Mona Lisa wishes she could be a masterpiece like you. More than any Michelangelo, when I look at you, I know there's no other masterpiece like you. You are the only one and only you. Each child, each person is a work of art. And just like you do when you go look at a piece of art, just like that, sometimes you look at another person or you look at one of your kids and you kind of look at it and go, huh, hmm, I don't know what that means. 
I'll have to think about that for a little bit. And where I'm going with that is, you know, abstract art painters, abstract artists never used to title their works of art because they didn't want the title to, infer, uh, to inform how people saw it and how people processed it. But the problem was curators and different people, uh, buyers, sellers, they would have to ascribe some type of title to it and then it would impact the way that people saw it. So now abstract artists will try to give it some title and it's kind of part of the art. One of my favorite abstract art pieces I, I loved it because I used to look at it and see something different every time I looked at it. But then one day I was on like Amazon or Wayfair or something, and I saw a print of that for sale and it gave it a title. And now the title is in my mind every time I look at it and forms that. And this is what we do with people, is we meet someone or have a kid or something, we're so quick to say, well, that person kind of reminds me of this person. And, and we categorize all that and think, well, they must be like that. And, and it f informs then how well we respond to them and our defense mechanisms and, and everything else. And, and we, we don't enjoy the difference or accept the uniqueness immediately. And we're different and need to be different and treated differently so that different things get done and the economy of God grows and the kingdom of God advances. Have you guys seen the movie uh, 13 Lives? Uh, it's a... It's a film, it's kind of shot like a documentary. It's re really neat about the rescue mission that assembled in Thailand, of uh, the group of boys, that soccer team that went in with their coach into the caves. You probably remember this from a number of years ago. And then uh, they've gotta be rescued out because those caves flooded and now they're filled with water. And uh, guys come in from another country, a diving team, and strap on their gear and go in, and this film follows them through uh, hours and upon hours and upon hours on end. You see that they've got to go through these tunnels and these caves filled with water with oxygen and figure out how to pull these boys out. And I watched it, just think of like how uniquely these guys are made. Like I can barely even, I got to get out of here. I'm so claustrophobic just watching the movie. And these guys are able to do this. And I just think about how, there's stuff you can do that they can't do. There's stuff I can do you can't do. You can do that I can't do. And God has shaped us uniquely for the time in which we live. And we're all needed in the body of Christ. Sometimes, I'll tell you, I get scared for my kids. I get scared for the next generation, the kids in our church, and uh, the world they're growing up in, and the wars that they may have to witness and see, and and. I won't give you my list of fears because you probably have your own, right? You don't need any new ones to carry with you today. But, but I bring this to mind. God created my kids and he knew exactly when they'd be alive, where they'd be alive, what they would see, what they would have to endure. And God loves my kids more than I do, more than I could ever imagine. And he's the author of their life. He's the author of their faith, the beginner, the perfecter, the finisher, and I submit them to God and say, God, I am yours to do with as you please, and so are my kids, and I submit them to you, you love my kids. One of the greatest tasks of parenting is to help them recognize their own uniqueness for their time that's God-given. They're not carbon copies, but here's the problem. There are two enemies that fight 
uh, your God-ordained uniqueness and fight uniquenesses in everybody in this room and in your life and in your family and they fight against children constantly. And the first enemy, you might write these down, is comparing. The pressure to compare is everywhere. Now, not all comparison is bad. You've heard me say this before. We all have to have a measure to grow against, right? Like if you go and get your blood drawn and they do lab work on that, the numbers don't mean anything if they don't compare them to healthy numbers. So there is healthy comparison that fosters health. But there is a lot of unhealthy forms of comparison. Because often what we do when we compare our life, our family, different aspects of our life, our job, different things to others, is we're comparing our stock room to someone else's showroom. We're comparing all the problems and the clutter and the stuff we've got to organize and and issues and all the things that we've got to put together back here with what someone else is just letting you see on the showroom. We're comparing our whole reel to someone else's highlight reel. And we're comparing academics and athletics and appearance and economic status and lawns and cars and jobs and everything, popularity, IQs. I mean, like even IQ, there are different, there are at least 11 or 12 different kinds of intelligence. Like an IQ test rates one type of intelligence, but there's mechanical intelligence, athletic intelligence, musical, artistic, relational, numerical, verbal intelligence, on and on. And it's not to say that we shouldn't grow in those things, we should, but if if you're weak in one, that doesn't mean you're not strong in another. If you're weak compared to someone else, it's because that's their strength. And don't compare because we're all unique. You can compare tangerines and submarines because they sound the same, but they are very different. <laughs> Thank you. I really liked that one. Uh, Galatians 6.4. Let's read this out loud. Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. There is a legitimate kind of pride in the Bible. The pride of having done your best with what God gave you. The moment though that you start comparing yourself saying, well I did better than them, or I didn't achieve what they did, or I'm not doing as well as them, or I don't have what that person has, you've just fallen into the sin of comparison. You trust God as much as you know how today. The other thing that fights our uniqueness is not comparing but conforming. Another word for this is people pleasing. It's when you're more worried about what other people think than you're worried about what God thinks of you. The conform, conforming is the peer pressure to be like somebody else. And conforming is a trap. The book of Proverbs says that fear of man is a trap. It's a trap because as soon as I am more concerned with what you think about me and more concerned with what you think I should do than I am what God thinks, I'm dead in the water because now I have just ascribed you as God in my life because I care more about what you think than God thinks in my life. And God says, I have no other gods above me. I shall be number one. It's a trap when you start worrying about what other people think. You do not need another person's approval to please God. You do not need another person's approval 
to be fulfilled. You don't need another person's approval to be happy. In Romans 12, verse 2, it says, do not be conformed to this world. So the pattern of this world. Don't value what the world values. Sex and salary and status and pleasure and power and position. Don't, don't conform to what the world values, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed, be transformed. I just started a book called uh, A Rebel's Manifesto by Sean McDowell. It's written to young people and uh, a rebel in there, he says it means following Jesus' example and sticking by your Christian convictions regardless of the cost. Not conforming to the world, but being transformed by God. That's a true rebel. And there's a great reward with that. So our goal as parents is to lead them to those convictions, to lead them to that decision. And how do we do that? By helping them discover who God made them to be. The world, the world tells people and tells kids, well, God may have made a mistake, and here's how you can be authentic. And you've gotta be authentically the way you think you should be or believe you are doing what you think you should do. No, 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 no. God sovereignly chose you and he intentionally put you where you are, knew when you would live. He chose your DNA, which genes would be recessive, which genes would be dominant, and their different gene structure. And he made you a man or a woman, and he crafted your personality and your abilities, and he knows what he's doing. And when you accept someone's uniqueness the way God made them to be, you're helping them accept their uniqueness, that you love them and accept them the way that when all everything else falls away, that you love them the way God made them to be. You love them the way they really are. Not who they pretend to be, not who they think they're supposed to be, not who they identify as, not the personality they think they're supposed to have, that when all that falls away, you, the Christian, see them as they were created by God and you love them and accept them that way. That's real, authentic love. And so we accept their uniqueness completely. Second, I must affirm their value constantly. Now this is a little bit different. This is more than simply, well, uh, <laughs> I accept you, kid. You know, I accept that you're part of the family. No, you gotta believe in them. You gotta celebrate them. And it's not always easy to do. We don't do it enough. Most, like we talk about these different generations. Most grandparents get affirmation on their anniversary or on different milestones or something like that. They need it all the time. Kids get affirmation on birthdays and graduations and games. They need it much more frequently than that. You know what I've discovered about people is that you and I and everybody else have a deep, deep bucket that you need fill, filled with affirmation. But that bucket leaks. And that's why we have to do it constantly. I don't think you can give your kids. Uh, kids, I don't think you can give your grandparents your parents. 
I don't think you can give your husband, your wife, your employees, anybody you care about too much affirmation because it's constantly leaking. And everybody has a deep, deep, deep hunger to be believed in, to be trusted, to be understood, to be affirmed, to be valued. And they need somebody to go, you are valuable, you are important. The model for being a parent is really our, our father in heaven. And here's what our father in heaven has to say about affirmation and value. Uh, this is teaching from Jesus in Matthew 10, 26. But don't be afraid of those who threaten you. For the time is coming when everything that is covered will be revealed and all that is secret will be made known to all. What I tell you now in the darkness, shout abroad when daybreak comes. What I whisper in your ear, shout from the housetops for all to hear. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall from the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. How can I affirm my kids to where they feel this value from God and this value from us? I want to give you three ways, just on the bottom of your outline here. So first one is visual attention. When you pay attention to something, it means you value it. If you don't pay attention, you don't pay attention to the things you don't value. Your eyes are a tool, uh, uh, an expression of your love. I love that in Matthew 10, 30 there, it says God knows the number of hairs on your head. You don't even know how many hairs you have on your head, but God knows how many are there and he knows the original color of them and how many fell out in the shower and on and on. God's paying attention to you. And the most priceless gift you give someone is attention because attention is your time. It's your life. So one of the ways you affirm kids is by seeing them, paying attention to them. Jesus, everywhere he went, gave a look, a word, and a touch. A look, a word, and a touch. So another way that we can affirm their value is through physical affection. The way you affirm your kids' value is by physical affection. Did you know God made your skin to be touched? Babies, if they're not touched enough as infants, uh, develop a failure to thrive syndrome. And premature babies, when they're put in the, uh, the NICU, are often massaged and, and touched. Otherwise, what they found is their brain does not develop. And it's a failure to thrive. So uh, they'll do that so the brain develops correctly. Parents, you need to hug your kids. You need to give physical uh, affection. Now, do not do physical touch with people who are not your kids, but a handshake, a fist bump, a high five goes a long way with the kids in your life. But you leave it there, and parents, give those hugs to your kids. Thirdly, we give look a word of touch, so we give verbal appreciation. Verbal appreciation means you tell people how valuable they are. You write a card, you leave a voicemail, send a random text, you've got to show it. You've got, you've got to show it, you've got to say it. Guys, are you telling your wife, you are precious to me. 
Wives, are you telling your husbands, you are precious to me? Are you telling the members of your family, I'm glad we are in the same family. I'm glad it worked out that we get to be in the same family together. Now, if, you, if you've ever uh, bought a house and held on to it for four or five years, you know, you understand the meaning of the word appreciation. Now, if you, it, your house raised in value. But if you ever bought a brand new car, the moment you drive it off the lot, you know the meaning of the word depreciation. Appreciation raises in value, depreciation lowers in value. And every time you appreciate the people around you, you're raising their value. Anytime I appreciate my wife, who is the most amazing woman of God, it's raising value. Anytime I appreciate my kids, who are two of the most tender-hearted and bold people I know, it raises their value. You know what one of the most powerful sentences you can give a kid is? It's to say, you know what you'd be good at? You know what you'd be good at? Because you just saw something they succeeded in and see, people often don't see in themselves what other people see. You know what you'd be good at? And you encourage them that way. I'll hear people say, well, I don't, I don't want to give you a big head. I, I don't want to give them a big head. I, I am just so beyond that because I, when I talk with people, I don't talk with people who have problems with having too big a head. What I find is people are inferior. They're, 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 they're thinking less of themselves. They don't think what they do matters. They don't think it's succeeding. They don't think it's making a difference. They don't think they matter. And they, get, they could get so much affirmation before pride would ever even be a problem in their life. Okay, I'm gonna pick up here next week, but I wanna uh, close this message. Don't check out on me yet here um, with this. A nation will never be stronger than its communities. A community will never be stronger than its churches. And a church will never be stronger than its families. And today in America, one of the problems, one of the reasons we're having the problems we are is because we're the first civilization, really in history, that's trying to pass on a civilization without moms and dads. And in some groups in America, uh, it's over 75% now that are growing up without, uh, without parents. And that's the bad news, but here's the good news. We know that the number one predictor of whether or not a kid is going to succeed in life, the number one predictor is not their intelligence, not how many times they moved around as a kid, not where their parents work, not what neighborhood they lived in, not how much money their family has. The number one predictor of whether or not a kid makes it is the presence of a caring adult who affirms and accepts them. The two things we talked about today. Here's the interesting part of what we know about that is that it doesn't have to be a parent. It just has to be somebody who cares. A coach, a Sunday school teacher, a neighbor, a Rockbrook for Kids teacher, a, a student uh, leader, someone to serve beside them at church who cares. And that's why this is in this series because this is a work for all of us. We have thousands of children in our community who need affirmation, who need to be accepted. Why are they so valuable? Why are you so valuable? The first reason you're so valuable is because God custom made you. We talked about that. 
You know, if you were to go into an art gallery and see three pictures on a, on a wall, uh, you were to see a Picasso, and then next a Rembrandt, and then next a, a stick figure by Ryland Walter, uh, you would no, those are not of equal value. The value is based on the creator. The value is based on the creator. I got this text from Chris Brown, our worship pastor, the other day. He said, hey man, you should buy this guitar. It's a 1962 Gibson ES, formerly owned by Keith Urban, $48,950. Now this guitar is not worth that much. It's, when it was made, it didn't sell for that much. It's because of who owned it, who had it, that now it's worth that much. I told the man I would, but I can't afford the shipping. <laughs> but God's mark is on your life, so you are valuable. The second reason why you're so valuable is Jesus died for you. If you want to know how much you are worth, you look at the cross, you're worth Jesus saying, you're worth God saying, I want you with me for eternity and I'll give up my life to make it happen. If something is uh, it's only worth what someone's willing to give up, God gave up his life. Here's the third reason why you're infinitely valuable is when you believe God made you and Jesus died for you, God's spirit lives in you. He indwells. You're the house for his spirit. The Trinity shows your value. The Father created you. The Son died for you. The Spirit lives in you. That's how valuable you are. That's how valuable your kids are. And they need to know the power of the Trinity of God in their life. We'll pick up next week, but would you pray uh, this prayer with me today. I'm just going to pray this to God uh, for me today, and I invite you in your heart and mind uh, as you're sitting there watching online, maybe you're listening in your car right now, just listen to this prayer and say, yes, God, me too. I want this as well. God, thank you for accepting me completely. God, it, it almost sounds odd to say, but I, I receive it, that because of who you are, the artist that you are, I am a masterpiece. And that you have planned good things for me to do. And God, I want to have a right view of you and a right view of me so that I can fulfill those things. God, help me break free from the pressures of comparing and conforming. I don't want to be what other people want me to be. I want to be who you made me to be. God, I want to appreciate people. I want to raise their value. I want to raise the value of my kids and the young people in my life. I don't want to depreciate them. So God, I thank you that you affirm my value. When you made me, Jesus, when you died on the cross for me, when you sent your spirit to me. God, I, I want to be an agent of that affirmation. I want to express the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I ask you to use me, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.